Welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris with Property Radar, and this is episode 29. This week, we have half the research team at the National Multifamily Housing Council. We've got the Director of Research, Chris Bruin, and Research Associate, Claire Gray. This week, we talk about trends in the apartment space nationwide. Uh, We talk about migration, COVID challenges, and some opportunities coming up in 2021 and the data that they are following in the year ahead. You won't want to miss this week. Hey, Chris and Claire, really nice to have you on the show today. Thanks for your time. I know, Chris, you're in D.C. It's an interesting time in the D.C. area, So, and you're in the office today, so good for you. <laughs> yeah. Claire, where, where are you parked today? I'm, I'm calling in from Arlington, Virginia, so okay. just over the river. Just over the river. All right. Well, I wanted to start the show off by asking, what's the number one data point you're watching headed into 2021? And Chris, I'll start with you. The number one data point? Uh, I would say that we're always um, looking at uh, rent collections mm. uh, that we're tracking every month. Um, well, I guess I, you, you asked for one, so I, that would be my we'll one. We'll go into more. We'll go into more, but yeah. I like that. Claire, do you have one that you really got your eye on? I was just going to say kind of building off of Chris, like we've been tracking rent collections, but we're finding out that, you know, occupancy, vacancy, that end of it is also pretty important because things are happening differently in different markets. You know, urban gateway markets are not in the same situation as the Midwest. So just both ends of the picture there. Oh, that sets us up so beautifully for such a fun conversation. So if somebody's not familiar with the National Multi-Housing uh, Housing Council, how, how would you describe it? I would say, so we are an organization that uh, represents uh, the U.S. apartment industry. And our, our members include uh, some of the largest uh, owners, managers, and developers of apartments, as well as other industry players like like uh, brokers, uh, uh, those in, in finance or technology re- related to the apartment industry. And our work is is part advocacy. We have a, a government affairs team here as well as um, providing research and insight for the industry. And, and uh, Claire and I are part of a four-person research team here. Very cool. Yeah, the advocacy piece uh, is just so important. And I've, I've been on the Hill in the single-family rental space sort of advocating on, on that. And uh, data always seems to do a really good job keeping things out of the political sometimes. <laughs> uh, it's just a really important role. So when it comes to data, what kind of information uh, do you find the most helpful in that process? Uh, in terms of what, what, what data do we well, think is most if go- important? Or- if you're going to the Hill, do, are, are, is Congress asking for specific insights? Are there any kind of, uh, when you're, any testimonials, that, uh, testimonies that you're doing at the Hill? What are they looking for? What kind of data uh, are they needing to make great decisions for housing? Hmm. Um, I know it changes, so it could be. Yeah, a and I mean, and some of this is in is is kind of in the domain of our government uh, government affairs team. Oh, got it, got it, got but, it. Okay. But it really, I mean, just whatever their objective is, it's important that they have an accurate picture mm-hmm. of, of the market. So just, just that uh, we're there to provide them with, you know, accurate data. And that they trust the data that you're providing them. That's always a, a, a big piece of it. Um, you mentioned that your members are large apartment owners. Is there a specific size? Can we define like the, uh, Maybe talk a little bit about what apartment looks like across the U.S. Uh, is it multi? Is it over a hundred units per apartment complex? Is it you know five to ten? Any insights into that? Well, our, our definition is uh, a rental unit in a building with five or more units. Okay. Uh, but I, our members uh, are of all different sizes, except um, we we definitely have a large representation of professionally managed. Uh, buildings. Has that changed at all over time? Uh, apartments, are they getting bigger, smaller? Any trends in that space that you're seeing? 
Um, I don't know if you want, do you have anything to add to this, Claire? Or um... Um, Well, I know we, we've seen kind of over time that apartment buildings, I think, are getting bigger and maybe the units are getting a little smaller, um, maybe more one bedrooms and efficiencies, especially in probably urban markets, trying to save space. I mean, um, in New York City, it makes me laugh when somebody says efficiency because I've lived in one of those efficiency <laughs> I live in one currently. Uh, and yeah, I, we, um, we looked at this data recently and I think since like 2006, I believe, was the year after which there was there started to be a higher share of units built that were either one bedrooms or efficiencies. Hmm. Okay. Is that the Japan model? Aren't they very known, well known for that? Um, I can't remember if it's China or Japan. Like they just, it's to, in order to live in like really great cities, it's almost like a cage. It's really uncomfortable to watch and they have, the, I know there's a lot of that in Japan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it's just interesting. Like having lived seven years in New York, you know, you're there for the experience. You're never, when I was there, I was living in very strange places and it was just, I was there to live in a great city. I was, and when I wasn't to the apartment, it was the sleep. So I didn't care, but you know, because of COVID, there's a lot of conversation about migration. And uh, let's just talk about some of the trends. Are, is there anything that has really surprised you in the apartment space in 2020 because of COVID? Um, I can't say anything that has, has surprised me. I mean, COVID itself is such a large shock and surprise that uh, I, I don't know if there's really any expectation there to begin with. Okay. Claire? Um, yeah, I think Chris is going to get more into the our quarterly survey later, but um, we survey our members based on a few regular questions every quarter, but we also usually try to ask a special question that's a little more topical to what's going on in the market or what we think they might be seeing. Um, and our most recent quarterly survey in October, we asked our members if they're seeing increased demand based on certain um, building and unit types. Mm. So um, overwhelmingly, the highest demand they were seeing was in the garden style apartments in both the efficiencies in one bedrooms and also the two plus bedroom units. So probably just people, you're stuck at home, you want to try to get maybe out of the city, a little more space, that kind of thing. I was going to say, um, not, I don't know if I know the garden style. What does that mean? It's It's more of like a two to four story kind of walk up Type apartment they might the buildings might be small but the property might have several buildings not like the mid and high rise that you might see got it in downtown areas um that's what i lived in yes. new york a lot of walk-ups and it was typically always the fifth floor <laughs> <laughs> garden style that makes it sound so lovely <laughs> yeah well let's get into the quarter really reports because your team really produces a lot of really great data so maybe chris you can tell us what's in, included and in some of the things you cover yeah, so we have uh, three different publications that we come out with quarterly. Uh, we have our quarterly survey, where we survey our members on four main metrics. We we ask them whether or not they think that their uh, that uh, the markets in which they operate there is that the market is becoming tighter or looser. Uh, if sales volumes are increasing or decreasing. And this is all relative to the prior quarter. Uh, and also if uh, equity and debt financing has become more or less available. And from their responses, we construct uh, an index uh, ranging from one to 100, uh, 50 representing no quarterly change. So if there's an equal number of respondents who say they think things are improving relative to those who think things are are getting worse, then it would be just at 50 there. Wow. So, uh, how many owners do you survey? Just curious. We usually get around, Claire, would you say around 150 responses? Yeah, I was going to say anywhere from 100 to 200. I think it just depends. You know, sometimes in the winter time or summer, people are out on vacation, maybe not as many, but any idea how many of those 150, how many units they represent total? not something that we track. Ah, got it. Okay. But yeah. I mean, those are 150 owners and they, some of them are going to own many, many 
apartment buildings. So there's going to be quite a few. So that's good to know. So right. what have you, what are you guys seeing as far as some of the data that you're, you're seeing? Um, let me think. So I'm trying to just recall, I have some notes here on the, the first uh, quarterly survey we had uh, during COVID in April had all the indices come in below 50. So condition, like, uh, indicative of, you know, market conditions were getting worse. Um, there was pretty widespread agreement about, about that. Uh, and then in July, um, all the indices also came in below 50, uh, with the exception of the index for debt financing. Um, mm. That was after the Federal Reserve took some pretty aggressive actions uh, and, and interest rates got lower. So you can see how maybe there was... Um, increased availability uh, of debt financing there. Uh, and then our, in our, our most recent survey, um, let me try to remember. Uh, I think it was just um, market tightness was the only one below 50. Right, so mar- yeah, so markets uh, got looser for a third consecutive quarter, but, but everything else was trending up. So there was uh, increased uh, sales activity and more uh, availability of debt and equity financing. That's a good thing and would definitely uh, aid in that uh, tightness number. Um, so the things are, are moving. Are you, are you able to see insights into specific area like urban markets like New York and San Francisco um, compared to more rural and suburban markets? So we, um, we sometimes receive some data data from a private data provider uh, called RealPage, and they have some more detailed uh, market-specific data. And we have looked at um, occupancy changes and, and rent growth by markets. Um, I'm looking at the second quarter data here, and we saw, let's see, in the second quarter, uh, actually rent increase um, in, uh, in low-rise buildings. Mm. Uh, and there was a, a, a rent de- uh, negative rent growth uh, in mid-rises and even larger negative rent growth in high-rises. So that, that is consistent with urban markets taking a little bit more of a hit. Uh, and, and it was a similar story with occupancy that um, saw a decline in occupancy most in, in, in the high-rise buildings. What are you seeing as far as uh, the percentage of rents being paid right now from your members? So um, for a little background, we started a rent payment tracker in April with five private data providers um, that provide property management software. Um, And so from April, we've been tracking that. And it, it did take a little bit of a dip in April, but really through, through the summer, Things were down a percentage point or two from where they were last year uh, for full month results. That's it. So, yeah, really, really speaking to you know, people want a safe place to live. They're they're paying their rent, and I know we've heard anecdotally that you know property operators are you know have these open lines of communication with their residents. Maybe they're helping them find local you know rental assistance or food aid, that kind of stuff, helping to make ends meet. Um, so we did see a little bit more of a deterioration in the full month November results. It was down about three and a half percentage points from the previous November, um, but we don't have our full December results yet. Yeah, everybody's calculating that up and that's, that's interesting. And of course, we were waiting to see the Congress get through another aid package, which came through um, and rumor ours are already working on the next one and the vaccines coming out. So are you, are you getting a sense that apartment owners are relatively positive uh, for 2021? Um, I, I don't know if I've, it's not, not as if I've spoken to any <laughs> owners about if they're, uh, what their outlook is like. Um, but I just wanted to get back real quick to um, the collections to, to oh, note sure. that, uh, you know, while those collection figures are, are positive. Um, that's not to say that residents aren't struggling to make their payments. Sure. 
And it's not to say, you know, we hear a lot of instances of uh, owners working out different payment plans with residents. So, so even though a lot of them end up making their payments, uh, there, there's kind of more to that story. Mm. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Definitely. Got it. Uh, and those yeah, percentages and, uh, are, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Claire. I was just going to say, though, it's also um, those percentages are for a full or partial rent payment, or they could be on a payment plan. Yeah, like Chris was saying, this story is a little more nuanced. And it's also um, our, with the five data providers, we're looking at a universe of about 11 and a half million units. Um, so even a three and a half percentage point decrease is almost 400,000 households that didn't pay rent. You know, so when you put a number to it, it mm. is still maybe a little bit of a stark picture, but the, like you were saying, the COVID relief bill with rental assistance and expanded unemployment definitely came when it was needed, you know? Yeah. We've brought this up a few times on the show. Um, I'm on the board of two on one um, for Riverside County, which is a health and human services hotline. And our United way that runs the two on one actually got the cares act funding to work with landlords to pass on grants to to uh, pay back rent for um, tenants. And there's some very large landlords who got some very large checks, um, which is incredibly helpful. Um, I, I wish everything was so easy. <laughs> Unfortunately, two on ones are managed differently at every county level. So you don't, they're not all structured the same way. But I'm, I'm sure that the aid that's coming through the CARES Act has just been very hit and miss depending on where these apartment owners are located, unfortunately. And if they live out of state and they're not professionally managed, maybe it's a mom and pops, you know, the tenants might have a very different experience. If the landlords don't know what's available locally, it's just hard to follow all this stuff. It's changing so quickly. It is. That's something too with our our rent tracker. It is just professionally managed apartments. So it doesn't capture any of the smaller properties like the mom and pop, like you mentioned, or yeah. subsidized housing or military housing. It's really those, you know, class A, class B professionally managed apartments. Do you get a sense of nationwide who owns apartment buildings? Is it predominantly professionally managed or are there a lot of mom and pops in the space? There are a lot of, a lot of smaller buildings, smaller owners, even if you know, maybe it's a mom and pop and they own a couple buildings, but it could be a couple buildings that have four units, mm. you know, where really the, the income that they're making from rent is to pay the mortgage and put food on the table. And that's, that's it. You know, we have, um, come, we come out with our annual top 50 list, mm-hmm. the largest, uh, owners. And, um, when we do that, we, 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 look at the percentage, uh, you know, what share that those 50 are of the total apartment stock, okay. which there are around 20, or I think 20, 20.1 uh, million apartments. And uh, I can't recall how many were in the top 50 last year, but we, you know, we, we do report on what that concentration is. Interesting. So there are a lot of mom and pops out there. Um, I always tell a lot of real estate professionals in different buckets if, if, especially investors, investors seem to be very, um, independent, not always part of associations. They, I don't know if they necessarily understand the value and how much work it takes to do the kind of research that you do and advocating on behalf of the industry and that very political side of lobbying and <laughs> providing data. So join your local associations and national associations. It's it's pretty incredible. And on your website, you've got so many other things. You've got um, you've got the quarterly survey, the rent payment tracker, and you've got the construction survey too. Is that the third thing that you're talking about? Uh, well, actually, no. That's so. That that is an additional uh, survey that we started to put out during COVID. Oh. So um, a separate one. You you decided to start a whole bunch of new things during COVID. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we have our three main publications, which I talked about quarterly survey. We also have our our market trends publication, where we you know report and comment on key metrics in the industry like rent growth, vacancy, 
uh, demand levels, that kind of thing. Um, and then we also have a research notes publication, quarterly publication, where we do more in-depth research uh, on uh, just uh, whatever topics we find interesting uh, or relevant to the time. But uh, but yeah, the, in, in addition to those, we, we have been putting out this uh, construction survey throughout COVID. Uh, I, th I think Claire's probably more familiar with some of the findings. Yeah, um, so we, we started this because, you know, like you were saying during COVID, people were just hungry for information and we have a variety of different members. And so you know, early on in the pandemic, there was a construction moratorium um, that kind of halted all construction, multifamily included. Um, so we were trying to capture what was going on with our members so that our lobbyists could take that information to the Hill. Um, so we started in, uh, I think, late March, um, and we've done five rounds kind of spread out uh, with the most recent round happening in October. Um, and, and pretty consistently, there have been about 55% of respondents that were reporting construction delays. Mm -hmm. um, and of those, we ask if it's in permitting or starts. And pretty consistently over the, the course of our surveying, it's increased the share that have said it's, you know, they're experiencing delays in permitting. I know in our most recent round in October, it was 90% of those that were experiencing delays were experiencing them in permitting. 77% were experiencing delays in starts for their construction. Um, we ask what's causing the delays. Obviously, economic uncertainty was a, a popular answer, but also some of that permitting and, permitting and entitlement um, and also availability of finance. Um, we ask if they're experiencing delays in financing, which was a, a popular answer. Or, or if they were unable to get financing, which it seemed that the issue were, it was just delays, not so much that they couldn't get it, but there's just a lot of backup right now. Um, I know we ask about materials. So if they're experiencing a lack of materials or price increases in materials. Um, so early on, especially imported materials like uh, countertops from Italy, or things like that, that maybe you're not thinking about being part of this big picture, but or elevators or cabinetry or AC units. Um, as far as price increases, I know lumber has been an answer. Every single survey people are seeing price increases in lumber. And also everyone's doing home projects because they're stuck at home. Um, Sucking up so all that's, the wood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, so that's a lot of what we're seeing, but our, our members also say that they've, um, you know, adopted new strategies to overcome some of these hurdles. Maybe it's new technology, maybe it's health screenings, it's PPE, it's staggering shifts. Um, so it's been really interesting to see kind of what our members have been doing to be proactive about what's going on. Um, and I think because of some of that, they, there haven't been as many issues with labor early on. It was like, Oh, people are getting sick. They're not showing up. They're they're nervous about getting their family sick. That kind of thing. But as we've gone on, they've you know worked out the kinks and figured out how to get everybody there safely and still work. I got a. I was telling Chris before we started recording. I just got an email. I I am very close to the building industry, and I got an email from one of the county's health departments saying that their staff was being diverted to COVID response and vaccinations, and that to expect more delays. <laughs> For the health, specifically health perming, health department. So I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Doing 1031 exchanges, that's not the news that you want to hear. Um, uh, tenants, are, do you do any research on tenants, what they look like, how they've changed over the years, um, sort of at the demographic level? Yes. Um, so... Well, so we, we talked a little bit about there being more one bedrooms and efficiencies. Mm -hmm. And one reason for that is that there are a lot of single people out there. Um, there have some, been some uh, uh, broad dem demographic trends. Uh, people tend to be getting married later, having kids later. Um, Take it. So 
taking longer to make that transition from rentership to ownership. Uh, and also there's been a long run trend of more young adults uh, living with their parents, uh, which kind of, so there's this kind of dual effect uh, uh, on demand for apartments there that on the one hand you have people renting for longer, but then you, you also have uh, more individuals who haven't even entered the market yet mm. who are still with mom and dad. Um, but I, I think that might explain some of uh, the, the unit mix out there uh, catering to, um, to singles. Boomers are, are seniors deciding to move down into exciting cities um, into some of these efficiency units, just looking for something to do maybe. So I actually, we, we looked at that, you know, you, you often hear this narrative of uh, downsizing baby boomer, like are, are they moving to the city at higher rates than other generations? And what we found was actually that they're not really doing so at higher rates. It's just that they're, they're just such a large generation. You know, there, there are so many of them that uh, whatever they do is magnified. So yes, obviously as they get older, you're going to see a lot of them moving into cities, but it, it's not as if they're only doing that. They're, you know, uh, they're, they're not really that much different uh, than, than prior generations from what we've seen. Has there been... Um... As far as apartment construction, uh, have you guys done any research on the features that um, owners as they're building are having to lean into sort of for the next generation of apartment dwellers? Um, well, we, we do conduct, we, another thing we do is we conduct a uh, resident preferences survey because, you know, we're, we're trying to get a feel for what people care about. Yeah. Uh, our last survey, we... Um, had responses from, I'm trying to recall, I think 270,000 renters uh, across the U.S. And uh, Claire and I, I guess we, we, could, we could try to recall some of the, the main findings. I'm, I'm trying to remember what, what they cared about. Uh, things like gyms are still important. Um, I think more of the kind of we call them like on demand or, you know, people want seamless interactions. Like maybe it's a tech in their apartment or like key fobs, um, things like that. Rooftop spaces, high speed internet is is, a big one. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, the basics as well, like air conditioning, (laughs) uh, having lived in New York, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not everywhere. Okay. Oh, and, and uh, w- one of the features that always tops the list is uh, soundproof walls. <laughs> yes. Amen to that one. Um, I've lived a, a below somebody in a basement apartment in New York that um, like to bounce basketballs at six o'clock in the morning quite consistently. <laughs> so I, I yeah. get it. Yeah. I tell my family that I live in that clogging insurance commercial. You know, I, I'm not sure which insurance company it was, but it, it shows the family above them clogging and you can hear them. So. <laughs> I, I, I get it too. <laughs> yeah. There's, de- it's definitely a different living experience, but um, having uh, lived in downtown Los Angeles and it was the first time I was in a rental unit in a while. Uh, I was really surprised to see all the technology. Uh, their target market was definitely something different that I had not experienced in New York as a starving artist. So in this building, the fancy cars below, the huge gym, the full basketball court, the movie theater, the office space that you could uh, rent. I mean, the amenities were pretty spectacular in downtown LA and it, it came with a price. Um, and then I'm looking at trends like co-living and the professionalization of the space that actually do a good job stripping all those amenities where the concept is just one price gets you everything up to, I've seen some co-living uh, companies do things like salt and pepper and olive oil and you know monthly cleaning and going as far as doing things like activities like hey we've put together a coffee with your local um, a council member so it's almost like you're selling a lifestyle not just in a a unit <laughs> so has 
Has there been any pressure that you've seen on the feature front that's more lifestyle driven and not feature driven? Uh, you know, we ask about that stuff in our survey as well. And I, I, I feel like if I recall correctly, people, uh, renters, that it's really kind of secondary to them, I think, okay. to, to the, to the, you know, things like what they're paying and, and that their unit has like the essentials. Okay. And I would say also, you know, sometimes we break it out by age or income or geography. And I feel like, um, for younger renters, sometimes it's the, this would be nice to have, not need to have kind of things aside from, you know, a speed and high speed internet is a need to have for everyone. Um, but I, we found that the younger renters, I think are also, we ask if they're open to like co-living situations or if they would be open to short-term rentals in their building. Um, and generally they were more open I think we asked if they would definitely or would possibly be interested in that. And they were definitely more open to it than um, the renters that are a little bit older living in apartments. A little more flexible. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking about owners or I definitely have some people in my life that are, you know, they've done single family for a long time and they're getting into the commercial space. And so interested in exploring apartments and what that would mean. And um, I'm sure it's very market driven as far as the features and maybe the demographic that you're chasing you know if you're in some markets it is just a story about essentials uh, but if you're in markets that are highly competitive and people have choices and you want a specific target rent you got to play ball a little bit but yeah just was just curious i was going to ask you on the on the construction side are you expecting a, a good amount of construction in this year so I was just looking at kind of uh, what our completions figures have been and uh, or I had the tab open, had the tab open, uh, but completions have actually been, uh, we're actually up a little bit in the third quarter um, and at some of the highest levels we've seen. So e even though permits and starts were down. So, <laughs> so I guess there, there, despite delays, there were still a lot of units coming online there. So I would, I would expect, you know, for the year, uh, you know, the early, I guess the, the first two quarters were uh, a bit lower, but, but not by much. So I, I think we're still looking at pretty high levels of completions there. Okay. With, if starts were lower, we might not see that, you know, for another year or so, right? Uh, it might slow down next year. It's almost like the COVID pause for construction and then might pick up a little bit. You know, affordable housing is a, is a huge conversation. Um, I know in the single family space, I'm here in California, it's almost like a joke. It's like, yeah, we can't build affordable housing in California. <laughs> Is there a lot of pressure on your industry to somehow pick up the slack in that department? Sure. Uh, you know, we, we track um, uh, the, the percentage of uh, apartment households that are what we call burdened or severely burdened who are, are paying over 30% of their income on rents, uh, that's that's cost burdened and severely burdened would, would be paying over 50% of their income on rent. And these have been figures that have been going up since uh, as far back as we've been tracking, uh, you know, like back to the 80s. Um, burden levels just keep getting higher. Uh, and this it's partly uh, an income issue. If you look at um, income growth over time, it's been very lackluster especially for those uh, without college degrees, uh, very stagnant in income growth. And uh, for those with very low levels of income, it's, it's almost impossible to build uh, housing that's affordable, you know? So there's the income side, and then uh, you have some of the areas of the country where you just have uh, really high levels of population growth and um, not nearly enough uh, uh, construction to keep up with that. Yeah, a lot of people putting pressure on fewer and fewer uh, rentals. So yeah, the prices are just going to keep going up and people get pushed out and it gets very political. You know, what What can we in the industry even do? I don't know. Um, and actually there's a um, if you look at, uh, so I know it seems like in the, in the past decade or so, we've been building a lot of apartments, 
Um, uh, but meanwhile, we've seen, you know, vacancy levels go down, like uh, high rent growth. And, and you think, why is this happening? It seems like we're building a lot. But if you zoom out and look at a, a, a longer term perspective, uh, we haven't been building. Uh, so this is this is when, you know, you know, millennials have been entering uh, the housing market now. But uh, when boomers entered, we were building much more apartments. Mm-hmm. Back in you know the early '70s and uh, through the '80s, uh, much higher levels of apartment completions. I I see that. Um, I follow the data here a lot in California, and this came up. Um, where was I speaking? I was speaking at a realtor association. Somebody asked me about builder. I'm like, you know, part of the problem is that it's almost like we took a, a full decade off of creating buildable lots. Uh, we haven't turned raw land into buildable places where builders can have at it. Um, so we're behind. And that is not a fast process. <laughs> the entitlement process is not fun. Um, one of the opportunities I, I hear coming up more often is the concept of mall renovations uh, for cities that don't want their mall to become um, the, <laughs> the next Amazon distribution center, uh, maybe building in density in new ways. Um, are you part of more conversations as cities sort of rethink uh, their master plans and building in density. Um, I, I don't know if we we I, our department has been part of any of those conversations per se, but uh, well, you should be. <laughs> I, actually, I'm just thinking. Um, I I have a good, one of one of one of my best friends is in Indianapolis, and uh, he, uh, his apartment building was in an old mall. And oh, it was a, a really interesting building. Yeah, I know here in Arlington, I've heard more about um, like office conversions into apartments as well. Really? Yeah, that's a whole different COVID conversation, right? That not as many offices are needed or the hospitality. Can we convert them somehow? I wasn't expecting the office thing to come up, though. That's interesting. Hmm. It could just be one particular building. I just know in my little neighborhood, well, not little neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, that's what I've heard. We have we have quite a few real estate investors that they'll hear different things as we're talking and go, oh, okay. Um, and the process of going down to a city, and sometimes you don't know t- until you ask, you go down to the planning department and see what they're willing to do. And uh, I was in downtown LA working uh, right before the downturn, and they were converting actually quite a few uh things like the Edison, the old utility building into a condo building. So it was going on quite a bit. So you just never know. Downtown LA has completely changed over the last 15 years with residential. Um, is there any cities that uh, look like they're going to just be really hot in the next couple of years for apartments? Uh, I mean, so we generally try to stay away from uh, forecasting and Got it. That's fine. In the future in that way. Yeah. <laughs> what are interesting things uh, shall we talk about uh, in the apartment space? It's definitely not my uh, my wheelhouse necessarily, but I'm fascinated with the trends and some of the data as people sort of consider sort of how to tackle next year, this year. Hmm. Well, I, I guess one topic I, I, I maybe should have talked a little bit more about before when we were talking about uh, migration uh, is that when when COVID did hit, I, I uh, conducted a little study to try to anticipate how something like this would affect uh, where people are moving. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, we, we didn't have much to go on in terms of like other pandemics. <laughs> yeah, so not a lot like of studies. <laughs> But I, I, I did want to play with that idea of, uh, you know, I, was actually, I actually focused on young adults. I wanted to play with that idea of young adults are choosing whether or not to live with their parents or, or if they're going to form households. And if they form households, if they're going to rent, if they're going to own, or, or if they rent, if, uh, if they are going to uh, have roommates, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I figured that, Figure that a, lo- a lot of this is, uh, you know, a function of income. So, um, I what I did I, at the time I was using 2018 data, and I just wanted to see the relationship b- 
between the likelihood of, of, of either living with their parents or renting alone or renting with roommates or, or owning a home, uh, relationship between that, that likelihood and a, a number of factors like your age, your income, uh, your educational attainment, your race. Um, and then once I constructed that model, I, you know, you, you can play with it and see what happens if you decrease people's incomes, you know, what, what would happen. Uh, and, and I think my findings were kind of, as you would expect, uh, with lower incomes, you get a, a lower likelihood that people are going to, to buy homes. Uh, you have a higher likelihood that people are going to live with roommates if they're renting. And you have a higher uh, likelihood that people are going to live with their parents. And in fact, what we have seen, uh, we've been tracking through the current population survey, the share of young adults living with their parents. Uh, and, and during this COVID period, they've reached uh, the highest uh, share since the Great Depression. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, th- this, is, this is, you know... That share has, there's been a longer term trend there as well. Yeah, uh, as I spoke to before, that uh, we have seen more young, young adults living with their parents, but even in the shorter term because of COVID, uh, that's, that, that's spiked. I've, I've definitely heard that. I mean, the millennials, let's be honest, millennials were called the boomerang generation, you know, staying at the parents' home for a really long time. And some of their other buying habits, though, too, were really interesting. They were renting a lot longer, but when they got into home ownership, they were jumping in, in some states like California, their median purchase price was on par with what boomers were buying. And that was just a few years ago. It was so interesting. So that kind of information is just so important to understand the trends because it could really change what you build, where you build. Um, interesting. Yeah. Um, um, and it has implications for the apartment industry, obviously. You know, th- those folks living with their parents, uh, presumably that's pent up demand for apartments that eventually, the, you know, those people are going to want to form their own households. Um, but maybe they're going to take longer to do so. And, and when they do form their households, uh, it might take longer to, to, to buy a home, you know? One of my, um, my favorite uh, micro living stories is the oldest mall in, in Rhode Island was, I think maybe in America, got converted to micro units, 300 square foot. And there's this YouTube video talking about a nurse that she um, trains in uh, for the week and she lives there and then she doesn't live there. Do you think COVID will change some of those sort of, I don't know, I don't even know what you call those kind of people that are looking at these efficiency units uh, because they're executives or, you know, they just don't want to drive the hour or two in markets like New York or um, San Francisco. Think anything might change there as when it specifically comes to apartment demand in these efficiency units or one bedroom? I I mean, is your hypothesis there that there will be less demands for the efficiency because, because, They'll be working from home, or yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think you know that's something everyone's been trying to speculate about, mm-hmm. and but it, but it's not something you could uh, really. I don't think there's any any data that will help you there. It's it's trying to predict people's future behavior. You know, are people are going to go going to uh, revert to how things were beforehand? Are we going to keep? Are we going to start going into the office like we did before? And I don't, I don't know if I have an answer. I don't know how you feel, Claire. I was going to say with the, our quarterly survey special question that asked about where our members were seeing demand in those like particular um, property and unit types, we also asked them how long they thought. So again, this is just totally opinion, but um, most of them, we gave them the option of um, like through the pandemic or six to 12 months beyond the pandemic. Mm. And then- and then longer timeframes as well. But those two were the ones that were most popular. So I think people probably feel like there's a, you know, return to city, that kind of thing. Um, I think so. There's a different reason why you live in the city. And I don't know. I guess I just feel like a lot of people are just dying to get back to normal. 
<laughs> and, and this is just, you know, me speaking. Uh, I, I could have moved out of the city and I've, I've chosen to stay in my tiny apartment. And so, you know, people like me still see the benefit and are eagerly awaiting for mm. things to be uh, reopened. And, and, you know, obviously there's much more to a city than being close to where you work. There's, there are a lot of, you know, amenities, restaurants, bars that people like being here for. Yeah, it's about lifestyle, quality of life. And it's just, it's so different. Um, I joke about, is there going to be like buyer's re- remorse in a year when they finally get to experience their first winter in Minneapolis or, you know, experience Florida's humidity for the first time over summer? <laughs> They're like, I'm going back, I'm going back. Um, well, it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, buyer's remorse. I, I think that's been a, another kind of narrative that, uh, I don't know if I have, I've seen any data on it, but uh, that, you know, a lot of people are buying homes and you know like i said earlier like if you know when the economy takes a hit uh all else being equal you're going to expect i think uh fewer home purchases and and covid is maybe a a bit different and and you might have people who were already going to buy a home who thought okay this is my chance to get out of new york and and you you know you hear stories of, of people who who have tons of money and Maybe it's not an issue for them to do so, but I, you know, long term, I can't see how COVID will uh, increase home purchases in in that way. You know, you don't necessarily have to buy a home to move to sure. the suburbs or to move out of the city. Yeah. And part of it's just a function of lower listings right now. I mean, in some markets, it's just so insane. I was talking to a realtor in the Palm Springs area that they've never had in in a really high dollar category, you know, multiple offers, like eight offers when they used to experience only two. Um, Realtors in San Diego and Palm Springs talking about Bay Area people coming down uh, because their median purchase price of a home up there is I think something like 1.7 million where in San Diego and Palm Springs, it's half that easily. So it it's just so interesting. If the remote work does stick long-term and, you know, the office says, I only need you up here once a week, twice a month, you know, all mm-hmm. of a sudden buying a house for <laughs> in San Diego and taking a flight up to San Francisco, it might work. I don't know. I, I guess that's the thing I'm waiting for. The one data point that I'm really interested in is to see if remote work is going to stick. And if we've, if off businesses like this model, uh, being on Zoom all the time, I don't know. Well, even within our company, before COVID even hit, we we had more people switching, sometimes full time uh, remote work. Okay. Uh, partly as a function of you know we have limited office space, and someone wants to work from home. All right. So you guys were already used to it. And and this has forced the entire nation all at once to get really good at this conversation. So that's what I'm excited about. We'll see. Claire, have you been working on any kind of research that gets you excited? I um, also did a research notes like Chris was talking about his earlier on. Um, I worked on one in September that kind of looked at um, which renters have been most affected by the job losses that we've experienced during the pandemic. Um, So that was really interesting Um, because, you know, there were some publications from like Urban Institute or Turner Center that looked at how renters have been impacted, but we kind of wanted to take it a step further and look at apartment renters because that's what we're dealing with. Um, So we found that there were some occupations that faced significant job loss that also employed a greater share of apartment residents. Um, Some of those being accommodation and food services, um, arts, entertainment, and recreation. Um, So apartment residents make up about 12 and a half percent of the adult population in the U S but we looked at where they made up a greater portion of some of these sectors and subsectors. Um, use data from the um, current employment statistics survey from BLS to see job losses. And then we use the American community survey to look at um, their occupation codes and shares of apartment residents in those occupations and match them up. 
Um, and so, for example, accommodation and food services, um, 18% of that workforce is apartment residents, which is a higher share than the U.S. population on the whole. Um, I know motion picture and sound recording mm. faced like a 50% employment loss um, from the start of the pandemic through August. That was the time frame we were looking at at the time. Um, and I think it was about 21% of those employees are apartment residents, um, arts and entertainment or um, arts and spectator sports, about 18% of those residents or those employees are apartment residents. Um, and they also face pretty significant job losses. So just those industries where relative to the size of the industry, they face great job losses. Um, because one thing, motion picture and sound recording, not a huge industry, but when you look at relative to the size of it, the share of, of job loss was pretty yeah. significant. Um, like in cities like LA though, that's that's a sizable portion of the workforce. So yeah, I could definitely see how that would impact. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we did take a look also at kind of the geographic concentration and it is, you know, it's kind of the tourism driven industries that really were hit the hardest. And so in places like LA and New York um, had a, a high share of those apartment residents that have faced job losses. But we also saw that in like Miami and Orlando and Las Vegas for those more tourism driven ones. And then of course the, the arts and entertainment also in New York and LA were really hard hit. That makes sense. What is, um, what's your guys's process? Where, where does the concept of doing research start from? Is it your, um, your members? Is it Congress? You wake up in the middle of the night and just have a, a dream about this next data set you want to find out? <laughs> I would like, say sometimes it comes from members. Uh, they'll contact us and ask us all sorts of questions that they're interested in. And sometimes we'll find it really interesting too. Uh, uh, I think but sometimes it's just, uh, you know, one of us will think of it and we'll all agree that it's a worthwhile idea. Very cool. So anything on the radar for 2021 that you're just dying to tackle? Um, let me think. Or data that you wished existed that you don't have? Well, I guess, you know, one topic that's come up recently that we've been thinking about is, you know, we get this question a lot. Um, how, what's the average length that people are staying in an apartment? Mm. And we've never had a good way of getting at that. So, so we, we normally look at like different census, census surveys, which are uh, different co cross sections every year. So it doesn't, doesn't follow the same people uh, over the years. Um, and what we are able to see and what we, what we typically track is like the percentage of apartment renters that have moved in the past year. Okay. Which is, which is interesting in itself. Uh, especially since, uh, I, I don't know if you're, if you're aware that uh, internal mobility has, has been declining for decades in this country. What do you mean by that? that people are moving less frequently. Oh, you mean as a, a, a geographical location or just in general? Like I parked in this apartment and I'm staying here for a really long time. Yeah, the latter. So, uh, Got it. Okay. so in, in, in any given year, you know, the percentage of, of people who have moved in the past year has been declining. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, we, we've, we've, even after taking into account differences in income, uh, education, all these things, uh, there's still there's still this uh, decrease in, in mobility that uh, we haven't been able to completely explain. That's interesting because that's happening in the single family home space though as well. Like oh yeah, absolutely. In, people in, are in, going in, in every space. Yeah, interesting. I, I really didn't know that that was happening in the apartment space. And huh. Well, obviously, you know, apartment residents move more frequently than yeah. people in single family. But but yeah, the still at a slower rate than they did like 10 years ago. Um, but, uh, but anyway, aside from that interesting trend, which I, I'm always looking to try to get to the bottom of, we, we are looking at ways to maybe 
use those rates, the percentage of people who have moved in the past year to approximate what the average length uh, uh, of, of stay is for different subpopulations. That'd be a really interesting metric because if you're an apartment owner and yours is just really messed up, you're like, I have a really crappy manager. <laughs> it is. That's a That would be a really cool data point. Okay. Yeah. All right. Claire, you have anything interesting you want to tackle in 2021? Gosh, I'm sure there is. It hasn't, I would say it hasn't come to me yet, but it's. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, any tech trends that, well, actually I wanted to ask real quick. You mentioned that you work with some of these software providers, which they might have some of this data. I mean, how awesome has that been that more apartment owners are leaning on these technology providers? So you have access to that. That's cool. Yeah, it's definitely been helpful for us tracking what's been going on through the pandemic. Because I know mom and pops probably wouldn't capture all the bullet points that they can have uh, give you access to, that's for sure. Um, technology trends. In um, I attended CES last year, and one of the things I was fascinated with the most was um, there was a company that worked with apartment buildings, and at the time, they were working with a number of very large operators in Los Angeles where they were putting sensor, uh, sensors on the AC and the water heater. And they had a partnership with the utility. And when the utility needed to burn off extra electricity so they didn't have to sell it off the grid, they would just hike up the AC and the property owner actually made money. It was really fascinating to me. Um, have you heard of any really cool technology that has gotten you really excited about the apartment space in the last year? You know, we, we have an annual um, operate, it's called Optech, so it's Operations and Technology Conference um, that took place in November virtually for us, which is really interesting. And there's always a lot of programming, so sometimes it's, it's hard to even take all of it in. Um, I know something that they talked about a lot with COVID, you know, apartment operators kind of had to make this like automatic switch to virtual leasing, virtual tours, um, that kind of thing. And, you know, is that here to stay? Which it seems like in some scenarios it is people are just, they want to see their unit, but maybe they're fine with a video um, or something like that. So that's something that kind of came out of necessity at the beginning of coronavirus. Some people had um, adopted it beforehand, but not a ton. And just, you know, it's whether or not it's here to stay. That's something that people were talking about a lot, just that automated component. All right. Chris, you see anything that got you excited from that conference? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I don't know if we had a innovation challenge this year, Claire. I don't think so. But uh, I'm trying to recall who the, who the winner was last time uh, and what, I, what that was. I think it had to do with um, like modular building. Ah, which is really interesting. I yeah, I think that. you're right. Uh, and and that, that's a topic that always comes up. And it always seems fascinating, but I, I, I've never really gotten into the weeds to, to know how much of an impact that might have on the industry. It's still really expensive out here in California. We have accessory dwelling units. Um, that's been a huge conversation because of affordable housing and the state has mandated it. And there's definitely a supply chain issue right now. Um, labor is an issue out here, like you guys, we've already talked about. Um, but it's still just too expensive. So 3D printing, modular, I'm really excited about it, but it still has to come down in price a little bit. But IKEA just raised their hand. They're building tiny homes now. And you know, fun fact, Amazon several years ago invested in plant prefab. They actually do manufacturing here in California, very close to where I live. And... Um, they do multi, they have a, a multi called Nest. And so it's very modular, but it's built off site and brought in it. And it speaks California's language. It's, it's green because it's done in a warehouse and you know, all this kind of stuff. If they can, if they can make it affordable, I just think that's got to be the future with robotics. And I just, I love this stuff. So plant free have really cool. one of the only ones that I know about in the commercial space right now, but I've seen others uh, with um Oh gosh, what is it called? The shipping containers and piecing them all together. I don't know. I've seen that. I was going to say, I don't remember if it was last year, maybe the year before. 
um, someone, maybe HUD, put on like an innovation type challenge on the mall here in D.C. And I'm pretty sure someone 3D printed mm-hmm. tiny house on the mall, you know, just very cool um, exposure to that kind of technology. Yeah. Icon, um, build mighty buildings. They're trying, um, uh, icon is out of Austin. Mighty buildings is based out of here in California. So they're here, but the average price point is just, it's just really high plant prefab has a, a modular unit. That's, um, I think it's, I think it's the starting point is around 180 grand. So you're like, Oh, <laughs> that's a little steep, <laughs> but it's coming. So I'm excited now with Ikea in the mix, you know, who, who knows what's next? So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit. We've we've run out of time. How can people find specifically your work? Where can they go on the website and stay in touch? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, our, our website's gotten a little bit better over the years and it's a little bit easier to navigate. <laughs> uh, if you could just go to nmhc.org uh, and go to research and insight, uh, it should be pretty easy from there to find what you're looking for. Uh, And if you want to contact Claire or I individually, if you go to about to staff, um, you find our contact info, Uh, you know, there might've been things done in this uh, interview that we've forgotten or that you want to know more about, just, you know, feel free to give us a call or shoot us an email. Very cool. And right. I will, I will make sure to post the links in show notes and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that, join the community, and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.